home, part 12. Can you believe it? 12 sermons in a row on the book of Nehemiah, and every week the book of Nehemiah has spoken to where we were. It's spoken to who we are and to what God has us doing. I'm excited to come to this one. Walking worthy is what we're talking about today. Book of Nehemiah, part 12, walking worthy of this God. Remember what's happened? They've come back from exile. They're in a new city, new walls, new gates. They've been restored to this wonderful life in Christ, delivered from captivity in Babylon. And now all God says is, you know what? You are blessed. Okay? I'm going to take a cue from the Pentecostal today. I want you to repeat after me. I am blessed. I am good looking. I have a great spouse. I have wonderful children. If you're single, say this, I am not under the authority of a man. No, just don't do that. <laughs> just kidding, don't do that, no. No matter where we are in this life, we are blessed incredibly. Look at this, Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3. The first part of, work, of walking worthy with God, that very first thing, he covers it in chapter 9. It's repentance. Repentance is the very first thing he talks about. Now, if I say repentance, Lambert gets unhappy. Because it's a terrible word, isn't it, Lambert? It's a horrible word. Look at Ed back there. Ed's all sad because repentance is not a fun thing. But repentance is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. If you have kids and your kid's done something wrong, not that you guys ever did anything wrong. If you, if you have kids and they do something wrong, what is the one thing that blesses the heart of a parent? Mommy, Daddy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I broke the rule. I'm sorry for what I did. And when you look into your child's eyes and they are truly sorry, it is so easy to forgive that child. It's hard to forgive stubbornness and obstinacy. You, know, you ever had a child that was stubborn? I was a child that was stubborn, okay? And sometimes you got to beat that child over the head, you know? Roll the newspaper up, pop them like a dog. Sometimes they just don't listen. But here's the thing, when somebody truly repents, that's the joy in heaven. When one sinner who realizes they're separated from God, when they come back to the Lord, and the right, Brother Robin, that's what it's about, seeing that one person separated from God, when they come back to the Lord, whether he's a mayor or whether he's a street cleaner, there is more joy in heaven over that repentance, that restoration, than of all the good people that don't do anything wrong. Look what it says. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and they put dust on their heads, a sign of deep grief and sadness. Sackcloth is itchy. It's nasty. It's not cashmere. Uh-uh. It's not even wool. This is nasty stuff. And they put dust on their heads to show that they were dust. Remember we talked about what it means to be humble? That word humble comes from earth or dirt, from dust. It shows our humility before God. So they put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the guilt of their fathers. Understand what this means. In Jerusalem, there were Israelites who were faithful to God. They were of the seed of Israel. They had come back from captivity. Then there were people who had come into the city just to live, people who were opportunistic. They weren't necessarily bad people. They weren't evil people. They just were not people that recognized the authority of God over them. We all know a lot of people who do not recognize the authority of God over them. And they're good people, aren't they? 
to say yes. We know good people who don't believe in God. We know a lot of people who are believing God who are not necessarily good people. (laughs) But there you go. That's how it goes. It says, they stood and they confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. Why? This was a time of restoration. You ever gotten your life to the place where you've messed it up so bad you just don't know how to go on? Maybe you've messed up your marriage. Maybe you've messed up your relationship with the kids. Maybe you've messed up your business. Maybe you've messed up a friendship. And you go, how do I do this? How do I rebuild this? Right here is a great way. It says right here, they confessed their sins and their guilt. I'll remind you of 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. All of us struggle with sin. All of us struggle with a hard heart. All of us struggle with, I wrote this down from the list. He says, here are the things that beset the modern church. Greed, jealousy, envy, gossip, stubbornness. Ooh, if you're a guy, that last one hurts. Stubbornness separates us from each other. It separates us from walking in a good relationship. So if we, if we say that we have no sin, that we don't have greed, jealousy, envy, gossip, stubbornness, list goes on and on, then we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. Why? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture? According to the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit lets us know when we are walking in sin. That's when your conscience bites you. That's when you've been doing something or behaving in a certain way, and you know that way is wrong. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you, saying, now, now, believer, you were not redeemed to live like this. At the same time, that Holy Spirit justifies us, lets us know that we're walking according to God's will, and it convicts us of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in us. Isn't that wonderful? The Holy Spirit should be telling you every day, you are a child of God. You are beloved of the Lord. You are, even if your friends don't like you, they don't like your lifestyle, you are fine. Because when you pray, the Holy Spirit convicts you that you are in a right relationship with God. That's the way it should be. When was the last time you were convicted of righteousness? I'll tell you when it was. The last time you sinned against somebody and you prayed for forgiveness and you knew you were forgiven, the feeling that follows is what? Relief. A conviction of right. Because you've made yourself right. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The people who were before the Lord on this solemn assembly day, they knew that they had done things and said things and bid things been things that were not pleasing to the Lord. This was their day to put aside the world, the world's standards, the world's expectations, and to come back to God and say, God, I have not been what you meant for me to be. Now, here's the thing. What does the world want us to be? Good people. What do good people do? Good people give money to the Salvation Army. Good people give a a bottle of unopened water to a homeless person on the street. Good people might... Uh, give a coat at a coat drive. Good people do all these things, but these are, these are actions. They're not the condition of the heart. To be good in God's sight is to be in a proper relationship with him. That's what the Israelites didn't have. They had a city with walls and gates and priests and a temple, but they were not walking in a right relationship with God. 
That's what it says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Now it says this, While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in worshiping and confession um, of the Lord their God. Confession and worshiping the Lord their God. A fourth of the day. That's three hours. Imagine if we have a worship service here that goes over an hour, we start getting hungry, Amen. Could you imagine standing in the Judean sun for three hours worshiping God and for three hours confessing your sins that have just been revealed because of your worship? You're reading the scriptures, and the scriptures are telling you who you should be, how you should live, how you should walk, what you should do for your fellow man. And for three hours you are exposed to the perfect mirror of God's holiness. And then in response to that, three hours of confession of sin. Three hours where we say, Lord, based upon what you show me in your word, this is where I fail. But Father, I know that you will make me right. You will cleanse me. You will put aside the past. You will help me start over again. Whenever you want to be right with somebody you've wronged, that's how you start. You start by realizing the sin was against God, and then you confess it to him, then you go get straight. It's what it says in Matthew anyways. It says that they stood apart from the people who were of the pagan nations. That's because God says what? Be good because I am good? That doesn't sound right. Be a nice person because I'm a nice person? Is that what God says? I think there's a four-letter word in there, isn't there? Be holy for I am holy. What does the word holy mean? Set apart. You can be in the Philippines, be from the Philippines, from the very city in the Philippines where you work, and you have to be set apart, Brother Robin, because you can't make excuses for people who are walking in disobedience. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to preach to your own people who are struggling just to get by. It's hard to tell them, I know that you are struggling, but you have to walk in integrity. You have to walk in honesty. You can't lie and cheat and steal. You can't do that. Try preaching that in America. They don't listen to it. Americans don't believe in that. They believe in getting everything they can. They lie on their taxes. They, 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 they cheat on their little forms. And See that couple, that, that, one, that one couple that had like $6 million or something, and they were getting money from the government on disability or Social Security, some ridiculous thing like that? I'm like, they got like $100,000 in Social Security, and they were living in a mansion. How does that happen? How do you... Burn your conscience so badly that you take money away from other people when you yourself don't really need it. How do you do that? Because you never look into the law of the Lord and you never wind up confessing your sin and being remade, being renewed. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I can't get through a single week, sometimes not a single day or a single hour, without having to confess to the Lord, Lord, I got an attitude issue. I never had an attitude issue like this until I got to Raleigh and tried to drive in the traffic here. Oh my goodness, it has pushed my salvation right to the edge. That's my daughter sometimes. When I drive, it's like, Lord Jesus, you're coming back, get me now. Start driving like a maniac. Something about driving in this place just makes you crazy. So I got to confess a lot of sin. Well, a lot of sin up here anyways. Very first thing the people did they saw the law of the Lord. They saw that perfectness of Christ. We're coming to Christmas, y'all. We're coming to Christmas. Christmas reveals the very perfect gift of God. Now consider our tithes and offerings. 
God doesn't care whether you give $10,000 or $1 or five cents. He doesn't care. What he cares about is the condition of the heart of the one who gives. You know what? You can be a multimillionaire. You can give $100,000 to charity and it not be an expression of your heart. We'll praise you. We'll say how wonderful you are for giving that money. But in truth, you're doing that to appease your own guilt rather than confess it and get rid of it. So if we're going to be God's people, if we're going to walk worthy of this God who has saved us, this is our restored Jerusalem. This is our place where it's okay to worship God, where it's okay to say the name of Jesus, where it's okay to talk about salvation and one way to heaven. It's okay in our restored Jerusalem among our people. So, but we need to be clean of the world and the world's standards and the world's expectations so that we can do that. Then, because we're changed in here, we need to carry our changeness out there. What we are in here needs to be the same person on Monday morning. Amen, Damon? Same person out there, Monday morning, on the job site. We need to be that same person. We need to be that same individual that we are in here. Ladies, when you go to the hospital and you go to work and some of them nurses are gossiping and backstabbing and slandering, y'all need to just go, you know what? I need to set myself apart from the foreigners. They can all be Filipinas. But if they're not walking up to Jesus, you need to set yourself apart from them. There are a lot of guys I know that I really like back in my old church. And they're all old army guys. But I can't hang out with them. Literally. I'm their pastor and I can't hang out with them. You know why? Every third word out of their mouth is an obscenity. Every joke is nasty. Every story is dirty. And I love those guys to death, and I will do anything for them, but I will not spend time with them because I cannot subject myself to that kind of filth. Because you know what? If you lay down with the pigs, you wake up muddy, honey. You know what I mean? You cannot surround yourself with godless people and expect to live a life free from internal conflict. I'm not saying we can spurn the world. I'm not saying we can shove them away. I'm not saying we can judge them. God will judge them. But you've got to protect your heart. You've got to watch yourself. You've got to keep yourself clean. And that means going through that constant process of repentance and confession of sin. But what else? Nehemiah 10, we're moving on to the next chapter. Same theme, but the next chapter. Nehemiah 10, 30 and 31. After we have repented and gotten rid of all that worldly junk, we need to be faithful to the God who called us, amen? There's not a man here who would cheat on his wife. Because I know Filipino women, they kill you dead. I know mine would. My dad gave her a handgun when we got married. And he said, honey, just don't shoot him unless he cheats. She keeps that gun. No, I made the mistake of taking her to a gun range after we got married. She's a better shot than me. I walk in fear of the Lord, my God, and my wife. No. We gotta be faithful to the Lord. Sometimes we can't see the Lord. We can't see his disapproving looks. So we, we think we can be faithless in small things, little things. We can just put it aside. But read this, 10, 30 through 31. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. That right there is dangerous talk in America today. There's hate crimes legislation out there that if they heard me say those words in church, they would throw me in jail. You know why? Because they don't understand it. 
That's not talking about one person of one culture marrying another person of another culture. It says to you, if you are a father and a mother, you need to encourage your children to take a spouse of the same faith. Of the same faith. Why? You're going to see that in a minute. But look what he says. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. In those days, a father had absolute authority over that sort of thing. He could only, only the father could give his daughter permission to marry into some other family. She couldn't just go and do it. So the father would protect his daughter by keeping her from marrying some really handsome, uh, strong, beautiful, eight-pack abs you know, type of guy. Always be careful of those guys that are too good looking. I'm always suspicious of those types. No, but <laughs> hey, got to have standards, right? Anyway, you keep your daughter from marrying the physically beautiful person that she has fallen madly in love with when he is a nice guy, but he's not a believer. Because what will happen is he will drag your child into idolatry, the worship of the world, the worship of, oh, everyone believes in God. Oprah Winfrey believes in God. I don't know what God she believes in, but she believes in a God. Be careful when someone says, I believe in God, because that statement means absolutely nothing. What did the Jews always say? I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because that was only one God identified that way in the entire world. Don't say I believe in God. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I believe in. That's where my faith is. My faith is not in the Southern Baptist Convention. My faith is not in Converge Mid-Atlantic. My faith is not in a denomination or a church title. My faith is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's where our faith rests. He says this, when the surrounding people bring merchandise of any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year, and we will cancel every debt. Okay, this is really addressing the issues of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. You know, it says, keep the Sabbath holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh day you shall rest. Now, Jesus says the Sabbath was created for the man, not man for the Sabbath. We don't keep Sunday. We don't keep the Sabbath because we've got to please God. We want to set aside ourselves from the world, from making money, from doing other things, so that we can focus on the Lord. I've told you before, there are people who must work on Sunday. God bless them. They have no choice. They have to be there. That is the nature of their work. Okay, if that's true, fine. When is your Sabbath? When do you set aside a day? When do you set aside television? When do you set aside friends? When do you set aside going out camping or fishing or hunting or whatever? When do you set it aside every week and you make the focus of your attention the Lord Jesus Christ? Revolution meets on Saturday night. Praise God! Because there are some people that can only come on Saturday night. We meet on Sunday morning. Praise God! The Jews met from Friday night sundown until Saturday night sundown. That was the Sabbath. The Sabbath began in the home with the father as the priest on Friday night, and he would begin the teaching of the word of God. It would continue in the synagogue on Saturday morning and as that continuance of the Sabbath time, and it would end 
And the shops would open at sundown on the first day of the week. That's how it worked. That's how it really went. But see, look at this. They have set aside all these rules. The Ten Commandments, obedience to the Sabbath. Exodus 23, the Sabbath rest for the land. Every seven years, the land was supposed to lay fallow or lay uncultivated. Why? Because just as man needed rest, so did the land. What do we know about early farming in this country? Early in this country, we planted crops that were good cash crops. And after a few years, what happened to the land? It was depleted. It was worn out. If, especially some types of plants, they suck everything out of the land. So if you don't rotate your crops or if you don't leave the land barren for a year, it is depleted. It's worn out. Guys, I'll tell you this. You try working seven days a week. You know, 52 weeks a year. You might live a year, five years. But every year that you do that, every year that you cease to have a Sabbath, every year that you keep going around the clock, you are getting weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker spiritually. You are going to drain yourself out. These people saw an opportunity to make money. We can sell stuff on Sunday. Well, for them, Saturday. We can sell stuff on the Sabbath day. In fact, outside people would line up to come into the city to sell their merchandise, to sell their wares. We're going to get into that in the next chapter. But the people of Jerusalem had this idea. Well, you know what? If I only, uh, if I only take advantage of it, but I don't actually do it, isn't that okay? See, I've spoken like a true Wall Street politician. I'm going to find a loophole in God's law. It's not about following the letter of the law. It's about keeping what God intended, which was that day for us to experience him. Let me ask you a question. When you're here today, are you here? Are you actually here today focused on the word of God and focused on his worship? Go to a lot of kids. A lot of kids bring their cell phones to church. And they're texting during the service. I used to have a deal with, with the kids at my old church. I will preach, and you will listen. If you pull out your cell phone, my deacons in the back will see you, and I will get your BlackBerry, and I will get your, your Apple 4 phone, and I will keep it. If you use it during the service, it's forfeit to God. That means I get it. Do you know nobody texted during my sermons? I never got my phone. Oh, well. Sometimes you have to be severe, you know. But the truth is this, it's so easy for us to be distracted. I went to, the, went to the restaurant the other day, a family sitting at a table, everybody had their cell phone out. They weren't eating and they weren't talking. I mean, okay, the not talking part, I kind of get that. The not eating part, what's wrong with them? You went to a restaurant to eat and your food is sitting there and you're texting. Come on, it's not that important. Put the phone aside for an hour. Focus on your family. Focus on your friends. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ for the one hour that you're here. Is it so hard? But for the Jews, it was impossible. It was so hard. In fact, Deuteronomy 15, there was a remission of sin on, on, on the seventh year, especially on, on, the, on the 50th year as well, the year of Jubilee. All debts were canceled. See, let's say you fell into deep debt. You could sell yourself as a maid to your best friend to, to pay for your debt. After six years, you have to let her go. On top of that, you've got to pay her for everything she did for you. Doesn't sound fair to the employer, does it? But basically, you could sell yourself as a slave to another Hebrew. 
to pay off that debt. It had to be a huge whopping debt. But here's the thing. At the end of those six years of service, you had to let them go. It was the remission of debt. It was the time of forgiveness, of evening it up and letting people get a fresh start. They had not been doing that. They had not been practicing the things of the Lord. So he's saying, you need to do this. This is what you need to live like to be faithful to God. That first part, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples. Twelve years before Nehemiah came back, another person named Ezra, a priest. Remember Ezra? He read the law all day long in the hearing of the people. This is what he said. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, those blasted Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians. Notice the Egyptians are involved here. Why does that strike you as really, really bad? The Egyptians are among the most hated people in all of Israel. Why? Because they held them as slaves for 400 years. But they're following the ways of the Egyptians, of the enslavers. They're going back and being just as bad as those who held them captive. And the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. This is not ethnicity. This is faith. The people of the Middle East, the Near East, are the same people racially. They look the same, same eyes, same hair. What separates them is their culture and their gods. So it wasn't that they had mixed with somebody of a different color. They had mixed with someone of a different faith. I could take a survey here right now, and I would be willing to bet that most people under the age of 25 don't see any major difference between, let's say, a Christian and a Jew and a good Muslim, and a nice Buddhist, I'm willing to bet that they don't see much difference in it. That's the danger. That's what happened here. They were beginning to mix these ideas and these peoples, and suddenly, when you fall hopelessly in love with somebody, and they're a godless pagan, or they're a really nice Buddhist, it's hard to train your heart to say no to that. It really is. They've taken some of their daughters to be wives, and and for their sons, and the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, notice Ezra identifies it as faithlessness. Faithlessness to who? To God. The hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. Do you realize that marriage in this day and age was not always about love? In fact, it was almost never about love. It was about political, financial advantage. Why would the officials and the chief men of Israel allow their sons to marry foreign women and allow their daughters to marry foreign men? Political advantage and money. I told you before, we counseled with a lady once. And her daughter was in love with another person, same nationality. I'm not going to say the Philippines, but there you go. And her mother said, no, you're not going to marry that broke bum. Both Christians, same church, both believers. I want you to marry this guy. But mom, he's not a Christian. I don't care. He's got money. He's a doctor. He can give you a good future. I never wanted to slap a mother so bad in my life. I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I hear 
people say stupid stuff like that, I get upset. You know what's funny? Most of you would not even think twice about hearing that statement. Most of you would not be angry over that. Because you will go, I can see why a mom would do that. I want my son or my daughter to have the biggest advantage, and she can always win him to Jesus later. No, you can't always win him to Jesus later. More than likely, he'll drag your child into deep sin and doubt. And I'm sorry, that's what the Word of God says, and I'm going to stand on Is that okay to say amen? Ooh, this side's quiet. Am I stepping on toes today? That's okay. I do that really good. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled the hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. There is the spirit of a prophet in, people, in God's people that just sees this abomination, and it angers us. It angers us because God gave so much to save us from the trash hole we used to live in, from the world and from the lies and the deception, and for us to plunge back into it just because he's a nice guy and he's got a lot of money, that is infuriating to anyone who sees God's holiness as absolute. Consider this. Would you rather your child marry somebody who had no money but was a strong believer in Jesus or somebody who was only giving lip service to God but had a lot of money and a good future. What would you rather for your child? Don't say it, but be honest with yourself about what you would do. Be honest. It'll say a lot about your walk with the Lord. When I look at this, I wonder about our day and age. Because that lady, that, that mom, she was a good lady. She was a nice lady. She really was. All she wanted for her daughter was money and a house and a car and a good future. But she was selling her child as a prostitute into the hands of the world for that advantage. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to have all the money and the houses and the cars and the socials? Is it worth it if your child is dragged away into idolatry and godlessness and their life begins to wither and die because they're not fed by a godly husband or wife? Is it worth it? Think about that. That's the questions I lay awake at night thinking about. Because those are the people that I've met over my life in ministry. People who sell out Christianity just because it's not convenient. I know politicians who hide the fact that they're Christians right until the election. Then they show up in church and they campaign in the church. And as soon as the election is over and they win, they leave the church. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? They use the church for political advantage. I know businessmen who find the biggest church in town when they move to a new place. They go to the biggest church with the most uh, affluent, most wealthy congregation, and they go there and they hand out their business cards. Hey, I'm new in the community. They put a little Jesus fish on there, and they hand it out. Come, come support me. I'm a believer just like you. Go out to lunch with them. They go through two beers and a martini and tell you the nastiest, dirtiest jokes you've ever heard. And you go, dear God, what are you thinking? What kind of faith do you honestly have? And I wonder sometimes about people who put the Jesus fish on the car. I was very hesitant to put a Jesus fish on my car. You know why? I'm a bad driver to begin with, so that's not a good witness. But 
I at least want to walk worthy of what I say I am. It was a big struggle to become a pastor because you have to walk worthy of what you say you are. You have to say things that nobody wants to hear. You've got to hound on points that hurt people's feelings. And I'm sorry, that's my job. That's my calling. Actually, I'm not sorry. I love it. That's my faithfulness to my God and to his word. Let's finish this up. Nehemiah 13, and we are done with the whole book. Nehemiah 13, it's a long one now, y'all. It's a long one. We got to keep the church faithful. It's not enough for you to be faithful. You got to keep the church faithful. Remember, we are all responsible for this church. Amen? I am really, actually, one person called me this week and let me know that there was a lot of uncomfortableness over the vote. I am very grateful to that guy. I'm very grateful. You know why? Because I know I'm the new guy. And you can't tell me that you're unhappy. But you can tell the men of this church and they can tell me, and that's great. Because I don't want us divided. I don't want us unhappy. I don't want us to think, oh, the pastor doesn't like me. The pastor was preaching at me today. No, I'm not. I'm not preaching at you. I had a guy once tell me, pastor, how'd you know I was cheating on my wife? I said, you just told me. <laughs> I preached on adultery that day. He said, how'd you know I was cheating? I said, you just told me. Another lady, how did you know I, I had hatred for that person in the church? You just told me. But you preached at me today. No, I didn't. I preached the word. And notice this. I go chapter by chapter by chapter. Why? So that you can never say, I built the sermon right at you. Because I didn't. I preached the next chapter in the book. If God is hitting you on the head, pay attention. He wants to get your attention. All right, Nehemiah 13, 15 through 31. We have to keep the church faithful. This is what Nehemiah had to do. Now notice this. It's long, but bear with me. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Whoops. He saw Jews doing on God's day work to make money so they could be wealthier. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. That's against the law of Moses. Remember, Ezra had just stood for a full day and proclaimed the law of God. They had just heard it from Ezra's mouth what they were supposed to do. And now they're doing just the opposite. I wonder how many folks go to church, hear a sermon, and then go do just the opposite. I want to figure it out someday. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah. Notice, he didn't go after the little guys. He went after the powerful people that could have made his life miserable. He picked on the people who were most responsible, irregardless of how much misery they could cause him. And he said to them, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all of this disaster on us and on this city? Remember, they've been taken away into captivity for 70 years. They have been slaves for 70 years because the people were disobedient to the word of God. And now they're doing it again. And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the gates be closed and not opened after the Sabbath, until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Nehemiah does what he can to protect the gates of the city. Here's the thing. 
moms and dads, aunties and uncles, grandma and grandpa, you need to protect the gates of your family. You need to correct error. You need to be the one to set the example for holiness and righteousness. You need to be the one to show by your life what it means to be faithful to God. Children don't learn faithfulness from a book. They learn it by watching mom and dad be faithful. Just like children learn compassion by watching their parents show compassion. They learn mercy by watching their parents show mercy. They learn forgiveness by watching everyone at church practice forgiveness. I learned a long time ago, my daughter is always there. Even when I don't know she's there, my daughter is there. You know what's the weird thing about kids? Kids can be like on the third floor of the house, you're in the basement, and you're whispering in the phone, and your kid hears every word you say. How do they do that? I know how wives do it. They bug the phone. How do your kids do that? How do your kids know everything? But they see every mistake. They see every outburst of anger. My daughter has caught every bad moment of my life as a parent. She's seen it all, and I don't know how she's always there. So we always have to go talk about it. Yeah, daddy is sorry. I shouldn't have done that. That was kind of stupid of me. And then she'll keep me accountable to not do that again. It's kind of amazing what kids do for you. So he set these protections on the gates to guard the gates against people stepping into Jerusalem, causing them to lead them into sin. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These are people that are forbidden for the Jews to intermarry with because their religions are paganistic, they're heathenistic, they are very seductive religions. Some religions really don't attract our attention very much. There's religions that want you to beat yourself and, and nail yourself to a cross, and most people try to stay away from those things, you know. Except in the Philippines, of course, and every Easter you've got to get nailed to a cross. There, so there are some religions that are very seductive, very attractive. Others, you know, not so much. Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, very very much sex-oriented types of religions, very much sensual. They were very attractive. Look at the movies Hollywood puts out today. Have you seen a movie lately where there wasn't at least one or two naked women and somebody making out on a couch somewhere? Have you seen any movies like that? I showed my, my daughter a movie last night. It's called The Trouble with Angels from like 1969 with Haley Mills. You know, the most a shocking thing in there is they're, they're in a Catholic girl's school and they get caught smoking. That's as bad as it gets in the whole movie. My daughter howled. She thought it was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. No cussing, no swearing, no nudity, no love scenes. Not, it's, in a girl's, it's in a Catholic girl's school for crying out loud. What could possibly happen there? Nothing. She loved it because there was nothing I had to censor. There was nothing I had to warn her about. She likes all that stuff. And so that's... That to me is interesting. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but they could not speak Hebrew. Why is that important? What language was the scripture in? Hebrew. Now later, later than this, in the 300s, when all of the world is Greek speaking, they go to Alexandria, Egypt, and they bring in the 72 scholars, and they translate the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Septuagint. And that was so that all people, all Greek-speaking people over the world could have the scripture in their own language. That's why that was done. That's why in 1611, at the nagging and the forcing of the Puritans, King James of England 
allowed the Bible to be printed in English widespread for the first time. Now, 1535, the translation was already there, but it was the bishop's Bible. It's only available to the, to the bishops and the clerics. This was for the people to see. That was a big change when the people had the Bible in their own language. So right now, these kids were essentially cut off from the faith of Israel because the language of the Bible was the language of Hebrew and they couldn't speak it. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Here's one of the few real condemnations of Solomon you will ever read in Scripture. Y'all need to mark this down, go back and look at this. Solomon was dearly loved. Israel reached its highest height in wealth and in power and size under Solomon. Yet, did not even Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was not a king like him among the nations. He was loved by his God, and his God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? You remember what happened to Solomon? Because of all those foreign wives, all those 900-something foreign wives, do you know what happened to him? The kingdom was stripped from his descendants. The kingdom was broken in two, and ultimately the kingdom was lost to the Babylonians. If you contaminate your family, if you bring in the world, if you bring in the world's ideas and the world's standards, all you're going to do is lead your children down the primrose path of destruction. It is not politically correct to say you must not marry a non-Christian, but I'm going to tell you, don't marry a non-Christian. The grief you bring in your life is not worth it. It's not worth it to you. It's not worth it to your children and the descendants after you. It's just not worth it. I know that's not politically correct, but I've never been. See, I was blessed. I was out of the United States from 91 to 97. That's when being PC was born. So because I wasn't here, I exempt myself from being politically correct. I wasn't here. I didn't vote for it, so I don't got to do it. Anyways, it says this. So why should we then hear about you doing all these terrible evils? Now, verse 30. So I purified them from everything foreign. That's not just the foreign women. That's the foreign thought, the foreign teachings, the foreign gods. All of that foreign nonsense that had crept into their lives that was not of the faith of Israel. And I assigned specific duties to each of the priests and the Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. That's how he closes out. That he wants God to remember that he has done all this for the glory of God. And ultimately, church, when we elect a church council in January, we want a church council that will serve God, not us. We want a church council that will do according to the scriptures, not according to what we think is right. We want men and women who will sit there and make decisions that are biblically sound and not bend to whatever culture sways them left or right. That's a big expectation of people to say, I want you to ignore American culture. I want you to ignore Filipino culture. I want you to embrace biblical culture. Biblical standards. See, and that's hard. That makes every single one of us uncomfortable. You all just got so uncomfortable, you won't believe it. I can see it in your faces. You just got really uncomfortable with me. You know what that means? I'm doing my job. 
It's not my job to make you love me. It's my job to make you love this word, this word only. So we face the same situation today. We face the same uh, trials in our families and the same pulls on our, on our children. So I give you these words from Romans and we're done. It says, Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, present your families, present your marriages, present your work, present your homes as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I believe the King James says you're acceptable spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the question, the last question of the day is this. Are you walking worthy, church? Only you know the answer to this. I'll tell you this. Don't start judging somebody else. Don't say, well, that brother's not walking worthy. That sister's not walking. Don't do that. You don't know their heart. You don't know what happens behind the scenes. You don't know what happens when you're not around them. You may not like that person on Sunday morning because you don't like the way they dress or the way they talk or you had a fight with them 30 years ago and you still haven't got over it. I want you guys to do this. You walk worthy of God yourself and let God worry about his servants. Amen? One, is examination and repentance part of your walk with God every day? Is that, do you sit down at night and look at yourself and say, Lord, did I represent you well today? Did I do the right thing? Every time I drive in traffic, I got to go home and repent. Seriously. You know, after I leave this, after I leave church today, I will go home and for the next two days, I will think about today's sermon. I will think, Lord, was I too hard? Lord, did I say too much? Lord, did I not say enough? Lord, was I accurate? I mean, I can be accurate historically. I can be accurate with the language of the text. I can be accurate with the intention of the text. But I, can, I need to make sure that what I'm doing, I'm doing with the right motivation of heart. That I'm not trying to, to be punishing, but I'm trying to get us all to see how serious our walk with God is. I mean, marriage is a serious thing. This ring has not come off my finger in 18 years. Mostly because I gained weight and I can't get it off anyway. But um. I, I told my wife, if anything ever happened to her, she said, am I going to get remarried? I said, oh, heck no. She said, what do you mean? I said, no woman could come close to you. So I'm going to keep that ring on my finger to the day I die. And I'm going to keep getting fatter and larger and it'll get stuck on there. Because you only make this kind of commitment once. At least I do. I couldn't go through that again. Seriously, finding, finding a woman that good is just hard. Can I get an amen from all the men? Yeah. Okay. Two. Are you studying to understand the word and the will of God better? You have to be a daily student of the word. The only way you can know if you're walking worthy is to see in the reflection of God's word what worthy looks like. You can't go based on what this person says about you or what that person says about you. If this person's life is closer to God, they may see you as a sinner. If that person's life is really miserable and decadent, they may think you're a saint. It doesn't matter what these two think. It matters what God says about you through his word. You remember that, Pastor? You do what God's word says about your life. Okay, you study it. You need to know what you believe. You need to know what the word of God says. And if what you believe and what the word says is different, who has to change? You. Because the word don't change ever. Are you studying to understand that word and understand that will of God better? That's how we walk worthy of the Lord. And finally, are you watching out for your neighbor? Are you watching out for your neighbor? If somebody is going through a hard time, if somebody's struggling, are you there with biblical advice? 
if your girlfriend is trying to make a decision on whether or not to really start dating this guy and he's a nice guy and he's got the APAC abs and he still has hair, great. What about his spiritual life? Okay, I, I say that because I actually watched the doctors this week and they were saying that actually a six-pack is an undeveloped waistline. I went, what? <laughs> there's, actually, there's actually two more obliques under there. So there's actually eight. There's actually eight in that system of muscles. But most men never get the last two developed. I said, ha, there's eight. So I'm not so bad. You only got six. Ha, <laughs> ha. No. That's how I justify myself. Anyways, but we need to watch out for each other. We need to make sure that our friends make wise decisions and that we are wise counsel for them. I mean, I don't care whether you're 80 or 18 or 16 or 15, you can give sound biblical advice to your friends. You can hold them up to God's perfect standard and the Lord will bless you as a prophet. Because your job is to say, I know he's a great guy or I know she's a great girl, but God's word says, don't give yourself to an unbeliever. Why would you want to ruin your, your life? Here's the thing, why do we not date unbelievers? Because once your heart is fully engaged, I don't care how strong of a believer you are, it is murder to walk away from someone that you are feeling that commitment to. So don't even start down that path. Don't even go out on that first date. Don't even try it out. I see you struggling, brother. I see you struggling. Don't even go there. Because once your heart's engaged, it's going to be 10 times harder to do the right thing, even if you know the right thing in your head. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Lord, I thank you for the book of Nehemiah. I thank you for all that was said and done, Lord, throughout this study. Father God, add your blessing to the words today. Father God, if I fell short, then Lord, make up for what I didn't do. And Father, if I went too far, hold back the people from getting crazy. But Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you love us so much, that you set a standard for us. You set a high standard that will protect us. It will protect our hearts. It will protect our lives. It will protect our families. It will keep us from making errors where the world's way looks so good, Father God. The world looks so inviting, but Father God, it's not. It's not right. And God, I just pray. I just pray that each one of us will walk worthy now, Father God. We will, we will always be ready to repent, Father God, when we go wrong. And Father, we all need repentance on a daily basis. Father God, your word says, when you sin, confess your sin. So Father God, we, we need to know that we can always come to you. And Father God, we do need to study that word, to look into that perfect mirror, to find the blemishes on ourselves that, that don't belong there. And Father God, I just really pray that we will love each other enough to in tenderness and kindness and in mercy give each other biblical advice, and scriptural uh, admonition to help us go, Father, forward into the life that you've set aside for us. Lord, I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.